0: This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. All right, well, it's great to conclude with now thinking through some of where we stand in the, in the tradition of the church, right? We don't um, come to this sort of brand new. We have to always ground things in scripture alone, but uh, it, the church is, uh, especially on these doctrinal areas, has been so... Uh, helpful. And on your seat, I've given you uh, the Chalcedonian Creed. There's different translations of that, and so sometimes you, you, the words will be a little different depending on who's translated it from the Greek. Um, and then you also have your own statement of faith. I put in there uh, the triune God, so the section on the Trinity, on the nature of God, the Holy Trinity, relations, actions, and then on the person of Christ. And we'll come back to that after just a few comments here just on how the church was seeking to wrestle with the whole of the Bible, the biblical text, put things together, and how these confessional statements, you know, nicely capture uh, what the Scripture is, is saying, right? So knowing Jesus is what we call this from the church's uh, confessional standards, right? So the confessions on these doctrines, right? So let me just make a comment about on these doctrines, right? Once you get once you get beyond some of the early councils of the church, obviously there's less agreement on certain other doctrinal areas, right? So for instance. You know, there was a Reformation that distinguished themselves from the Roman Catholic Church, not at every point of doctrine, but on crucial issues of the authority of Scripture and justification and, and really Christ's all-sufficient work was behind some of those issues as well. So in the early era, there's much more agreement. So that's why we often, in our evangelical search circles and Protestant circles, will take these early confessions and really take them seriously because they were, there's been so much um, uh, agreement on them and there's been so much in terms of uh, we see that they are faithful to Scripture. As statements depart from Scripture, then of course it's Scripture alone that has to critique. Uh, so we just don't just appeal to the confession by itself, but these particular ones and Chalcedon as well as Nicaea, Nicaea precedes this, is where we get the doctrine of the Trinity and the Christological statement and they're so carefully done that it's hard to improve them other than putting them in more popular you know current language and this type of thing. So that's not true of all the confessions and the reason I say that is is there's a big push today in in academic evangelical circles, Uh, this term retrieval is everywhere. Uh, If you're on blogs and this type of thing, everyone wants to retrieve, particularly they want to retrieve the early church. Well, there's much of the early church you can retrieve and there's much of it you can't retrieve. So you just have to be careful. On these doctrinal areas, they are so well-crafted, so faithful to Scripture that uh, they are worth (laughs) uh, receiving and embracing and distinguishing then what true, you know, confession of the Trinity and what Christology is versus something false, right? Now, as we think of of the church's confessional standards, right? So, uh, Chalcedon, what I give to you, is 451 A.D. So, that's 5th century, right? So, obviously, the apostles pass off the scene. John's the last of them. So, at the end of, of the 1st century, then you have the rise of post-apostolic era, what we call the early church or uh, the patristic, the fathers, the patristic era that runs from 100 all the way to people give different years for it, 700 AD, you know, so, and then you, then in the West you move to the Middle Ages, uh, to then the Reformation uh, with the split, and then to our contemporary era, and then the East has other points. Uh, it was an empire, the Byzantine Empire, until uh, the Muslims took it over and uh, in um, and knocked it out, right? And then you have Greek Orthodoxy and so on. But in these early church uh, era, the first century on, right, uh, the church is, is working from the gospel. They're seeking to make sense of, and they're doing theology, make sense of the whole Bible's presentation. And, and of course, as the church moves out, proclaims Christ, they will face opposition, which happened. People said, we don't believe that. This is incredulous. Trifo, the Jew would say, crucified, Messiah. Fuck, crazy. The Greeks, right? They even have this in 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, in terms of the cross, to the Greeks, this is foolishness. To the Jews, it's stumbling block, right? So as the gospel goes forth, right, there is then the theologizing, right? To making sense of, accounting for. Theology at its heart is faith-seeking understanding. So as you talk with unbelievers right? They say, why do you believe that? <laughs> right? How do you make sense of that? That sounds contradictory, right? And so we seek to give a reason for the hope that's in us. This is First Peter 3. Um, we seek to explain for them and proclaim to them Christ and call them to faith and repentance, right? So that's going on. As well as then, as Christians, or as people become Christians, they're brought into the church, discipleship takes place. And as you read your Bible, right, there's legitimate questions that come up. How do I make sense of that? How do I make sense of Colossians 1.17, that the Son, even in the incarnation, is sustaining the universe, and Luke 2.52, where he grows in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man? I mean, is this contradictory? How do I make sense of that? Legitimate questions that the Bible raises, right? Or you have, Jesus will say, um, only the Father knows the end, I don't. And you think, what's going on here, right? Uh, You're the eternal son of God, and so some people appeal to those texts within the church. This is where eventually you get the Arians and so on. They'll say, well, I know how to explain those texts. (laughs) Uh, The father has all knowledge, but the son doesn't. And then you say, if the son doesn't have all knowledge, then how is he God? Well, He's not God. He's a creature, right? And then you start getting explanations. And so now you have to say, no, 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 no. That's not how these passages go together. Uh, Or Colossians 1, right? He's the firstborn over all creation. And Arius comes along and says, well, that means he was the first created being. "Ah, That doesn't make sense because that contradicts this, right? And so, so both outside the church, theology has to be done. Apologetics, right? Defense of the faith, proclamation of the gospel giving reason for the hope that we believe in and within the church, right? Uh, Arius, all these heresies all came from within and the church had to say, no, 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 no. You have now denied the truth of Scripture. You've left us with no Redeemer. You're outside the church and so on and that's how theology is unfolding in these early eras and it unfolds today this way as well in some sense, doesn't it? I mean, people will propose something and you say, no, that's not biblical. (laughs) We have to reject that, right? Now, as the early church is thinking through these issues, right, especially the first area that Christology is driving it, right, the coming of the Lord Jesus in space-time history, now we have to wrestle with who is this Jesus, right? Who is he in relation to the Father, the Son? The whole identity of Jesus in the Gospels is he's the Son of the Father. What's that relationship? And then he has the Spirit. (laughs) How do we think of that relationship? And as we look at the whole presentation of the Bible, right, we see that there's one true and living God, right? There's no you know, denial of that from Genesis on, right? One true God. Yet, yet, if we are going to be faithful to Scripture, we have to say that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So now we have three, yet one God. How do we put that together, And the only way you can be faithful to Scripture is hold them all together. So, what happens is, is the heresies eventually come along and they say, the Son is not God. Well, that denies Scripture. That's false. Or the Spirit is not God, right? That's false, right? Now, as theology unfolds, right, the church now has to work from Scripture, and make sense of it. And they often, and this is a move the church makes, and this will show it themselves in our confessional standards, the church will have to appeal often to what we call extra-biblical language. Now, extra-biblical language means language to describe what we're talking about here outside of the Bible, extra-biblical. Now, extra-biblical doesn't mean unbiblical, right? It just simply means I don't find chapter and verse for that. It's language that I must employ or use to make sense of the Bible in order to guard the truth of Scripture and to defend the faith and to proclaim the Jesus of the Bible, right? So, for instance, the easiest example of this is the word Trinity, You'll never find the word Trinity in the Bible. And you'll have Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, won't they? (laughs) And they'll say, did you know that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible? And you say, and your answer to them should be, yes, I do know that. But the Trinity is found everywhere in the Bible. (laughs) The concept, right? The idea, the truth of. So the word Trinity now becomes an extra-biblical term to explain one God, and three right the term right isn't chapter verse but it's biblical because it explains scripture right and we have a lot of other areas of this as well right we're so used to this but even when we talk about the Trinity and then over into the person of Christ right even the person of Christ I mean that language person we will say God is three persons he is one person God and we often speak of one nature or one godhead or one essence or one being all of that language isn't isn't sort of one for one chapter and verse right to speak of person that's an english translation of a whole bunch of greek and latin and so we then use person and we use that in our vocabulary, we've become pretty used to it. So we say God is three persons in one nature. But person-nature language is extra-biblical language. It's describing the reality that there's one God. That's what nature refers to. It's describing the reality that Father, Son, and Spirit are three. But you then have to create vocabulary. And this was not easy. And this is where the early church had to... Now, look, they were living in, obviously, a Greek world. It was the Roman Empire, but Greek was the major language. And then, of course, as you move to the West, it was Latin, right? And so even you have Latin and Greek speaking, and then as you move to Jerusalem, you've got Hebrew speaking. I mean, you've got all kinds of languages. But Greek was the main sort of intellectual language, sort of like English is today around the world right? And then you had Latin, and they had to create vocabulary to now describe person and nature, three in one, Now, it's very interesting here that the church was faithful to the Bible in doing this, not Greek thought, right? you'll sometimes hear people say uh, the Bible is, you know, Christians in in the development of the Trinity, and Jehovah's Witness will say this, that they're they're imbibing Greek thought. Well, the, the truth of the matter is it's the opposite, Because there was no language in Greek that developed the difference between person and nature. In fact, there was a couple of words used. The word for nature was this word called ousia, where we get the word homoousius. This is a part of our confessional statements. God is of one nature, one essence, uh, in, as it comes over into Latin, it will be in our creeds, consubstantial, of one substance, of one. It, it all comes out of this Greek word of ousia, being, one being. The word for person is the word hypostasis, right? Where we get hypostatic union, we talk about. But in Greek, those words were synonyms. Right? And you got a problem if they're synonyms because there's no way of distinguishing the three from the one if they're all the same. And there was a heresy in the early church that said that. It was called modalism, which treated Father, Son, and Spirit as the same thing, same person. You have some of that today, even in cults and so on, right? Uh, T.D. Jakes is a a modalist uh, running around and, and saying these same kind of things today, so it hasn't disappeared. But the church then had to take vocabulary from the early, from the Greek, and it had to say, we're going to use the word hypostasis now differently than the Greeks do. Which is evidence that they weren't following the Greeks, they were following Scripture. They were just simply using the vocabulary that is there and then giving it new meaning. Right? So they're following Scripture. And so what happened then is over a period of time, right, we spoke of Father, Son, and Spirit as, and now we're anglicizing it hypostasis, in Latin, it comes over as persona, and Latin goes quickly to, to English, right? If you are in the classical program with your homeschooling or something, right, you often learn Latin and so on, it comes over quickly to English. But persona comes over into English as person. Right? So very early on, Father, Son, and Spirit are described as persons. And then the oneness of God is spoken of as God's Usia, in Latin, it was essentia. Essentia was where we get the English word essence, right? Or essence or nature. So God is one in being or nature or essence. He's three in person. But the church in defining that did not, and this is a mistake that people make today. You don't go and look at theology in terms of contemporary dictionaries. (laughs) When we use, for instance, this is a big, huge discussion today that gets people into all kinds of problems. When we use the word person in contemporary language, we do not use it the way the church used it. And if you go to Oxford English Dictionary or Webster's Dictionary or whatever the dictionary is out there and you now take person and you load it back onto Christian theology, you're going to be a heretic. Right? And this is why people have to know something of history and theology and study these things carefully, right? Because when we use the word person, we often speak of an individual. We'll say, who is that person and they're a whole individual well when we use that for the god we're not saying who are three individuals that'd be three gods All right. or when we use the word person we often refer to people's personalities what kind of person are they and then we look at their enneagrams or whatever they do I mean whatever I've got relatives who love enneagrams I don't have much time for them but anyway um, so you have what kind of personality are they right well, that's not how we're, we're not saying, what's the personality of the father? What's the personality, you know, as if they have psychological traits or something like this, right? We'll sometimes even equate person in Christian language with the soul. We'll say, people have our souls, or we're winning souls, or we're winning persons, and we often use those terms, but that clearly is a mistake, In terms of theology, because what will be very clear is that the Son of God, who is a person in theology, takes to himself a human nature that is a body and a soul. So soul is not the same as person. So the church had to really wrestle with this. This is why a lot of heresies arose trying to think through this. And eventually as the church lays this down at Nicaea. So 325 is the, is the rejection of the Arians who denied the deity of Christ. They denied the deity of the Spirit. And even then you have to go to the second council that gives us what we today call our Nicene Creed. So 325, 381 together give you the Nicene Creed which lay out for us There's one true and living God who subsists, even exist isn't strong enough. These three persons subsist in the one identical divine nature. God is one God. God isn't just an instance of God, right? You and I, as humans, we're all human, but we have different instances of it, right? That's not God. God is one being, He is only God. Yet the three persons share the same identical divine nature. That is how the Son of God is God equal with the Father. They have the same nature, right? You and I aren't like this. Right? Even husbands and wives, right? We're one, but you're two individuals. Right? That's not the Trinity, right? You don't share the same human nature identically, Right? One's female, one's male. One has different hair color and, you know, all these kind of things. I mean, there's different DNA. I mean, it distinguishes us. So oneness in terms of a marriage relationship isn't the same as with the Trinity. Three persons share the same identical divine nature so that the Son is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. Yet the distinction, and then you say, well, if they share the same divine nature, they have everything in common don't they in terms of the divine nature all of eternity is equally theirs all of power is equally theirs all of authority is equally theirs all of you know you think of all of God's attributes independent self-sufficient all of it's theirs yet how are they distinguished they're distinguished as the church said by how they relate to one another in the divine nature That's called person relations, and you'll see this in the confessional creeds, right? I'm just picking this up because when we come even to your statement of faith in the sovereign grace churches, right, all of that's carefully picked up. It's usually picked up in terms of the language of person properties. So what does the father have that the son doesn't have? Well, they have the entire divine nature in common, right? They're God equal with one another. The son is not a creature. The son is God equal with the father, God equal with the spirit, Yet the son has a person relation or property that's different than the father. The father has a person relation different than the son. What is that? And the scripture speaks of this in terms of, and theology speaks of this in terms of fatherhood, sonship, and spiritship. I mean, they're just trying to follow biblical language. So the father has what we call paternity, fatherhood. And everything we see in Scripture is that the Father is the one who in the relations of Father, Son, and Spirit seems to initiate. He sends. He's the one who plans. He's the one. And the Son is the one who does everything from. That's where we have the Son is Son and we speak of this in the language of the church as eternal generation. Seems strange. Generation, that's not eternal. But in this case here, within God... Before ever there's a creation, right, there is relation within God, right? You have that in John 1, the words with, the word was. So the Son now, everything you see in Scripture is the Son is from the Father. John 5, Jesus can say, I can do nothing on my own, but whatever the Father does, I do. Well, doing nothing on his own means that he always acts not independently, he acts from the Father. Yet, whatever the Father does, He can do. He can create universes. He can rule them. He can sustain them. I mean, that's divine action, right? So, He's God equal with, yet He is from. And the Spirit is the one who the language of the church is that He proceeds from. comes right out of Scripture, right? The Spirit is breath. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. So, this is how the early Trinitarians, so one God... Three persons, three persons share the same identical divine nature. They're distinguished as persons by their relations to one another, and that's it. So, Father, Son, and Spirit speak the universe into existence as one act. Except the Father does so through the Son by the Spirit. The Son does so from the Father by the Spirit. The Spirit does so from the Father and Son, but it's one act. Right? That's another area of theology called inseparable operations. Right? It's not three gods acting. If you have distinct operations, the Father doing one thing, the Son doing another thing, the Spirit doing another thing, right? you would have three gods. You would have three wills. It's another whole debate. Within God, there's one nature, one power, one will, one eternity, Um, and all three persons share in that same nature, and it's the Son of God now who's taken to Himself, the second person who is fully God, He's taken to Himself now an additional nature two natures. He's now taken to himself a human nature. So the biblical truths that the church has to work through then is this son is fully God, right? He is fully God in that he shares the same divine nature with the Father and the Spirit. There's no difference between the Father, Son, and Spirit other than their person. They have the same attributes, the same knowledge, the same will, the same power. There's one God, yet three. And this second person of the God now has taken, Godhood has taken on a human nature. So as we saw, John 1, John 1, 1, with God is God. That's differentiation within. John 1, 14, the Son now has added. He has added the Word, became flesh, right? And so the church now has to work through the parameters of holding all of that together. The Son is God equal with the Father and Spirit. He is of the same nature. The language is homoousius, right? The Arians said he's just a creature. No, 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 right? He is fully human. And by fully human, he had to take on, as much as we know of what humans are from scripture, is that we have a body and we also have a soul. The soul is not the same as the person. The body and soul is what we have. And when we think of a soul, we think of a human. This is Luke 2.52. We think of a human will, we think of a human mind, we think of human growth, right? And in that humanity, the Son of God grew, right? But it was in His humanity, it was through a human will, through a human body, and through a human mind, and so on. So, you have to say, did did the Son of God have to learn mathematics? Yeah, He did, in His humanity. But He has two natures. He's not limited to that humanity. He's also able to act outside of. But in that humanity, he does not make that humanity something it's not. He doesn't make his humanity omniscient. He doesn't make his humanity all-powerful. He doesn't make his humanity that which is all-present, right? The humanity remains humanity. There's a creator-creature distinction even within the Son of God, right? Even within the Lord Jesus. There's two natures. But the Son, the person of the Son in that humanity, learns humanly. And it's the Son of God in that humanity learning it, right? So he knows as the Son, through his humanity, what it means to experience life. And that's how he can be our sympathetic high priest. Right? He can identify with us. He knows what it's like to have a friend turn on him. He knows what it's like to experience, you know, bombardment of bacterias and viruses, Right? Now, did he fight them off? Did he ever succumb to them? That's a whole different speculative question. I don't think he probably did, but he certainly would have lived in a fallen world and experienced the fallenness of this world and so on and so on. Now, as the church then thinks through this, there were three, you have not only Trinitarian denials, but as it comes over to Christ, three heresies that must be avoided. And all of these show up in, our creeds, confessions, and even today. The first heresy was one that compromised his humanity. And that was called Apollinarianism. So the full deity of Christ was maintained, but what Apollinarius taught was that in the incarnation, the Son took to himself an incomplete humanity. You could say he basically took a body. It's a little more complicated, but he didn't take a soul. But if he didn't take a soul, this is where the church came along and says, no, 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 no. If he doesn't take a human soul, then how does he save our human souls? <laughs> he must take on a full human nature. He must take on a body and a soul. And of course, also in Scripture, he must obey for us. Right? Remember, we said tied to the storyline of Scripture is last Adam. Last Adam, he must, in that humanity, as seed of the woman, obey for us. But he gives human obedience. So he needs a human will, doesn't he? So that if he doesn't have a human body and a soul, we have no savior. And so apollinarius was a strong defender of the deity of Christ. But the church says, no. <laughs> That's heresy. So anything that compromises the humanity of Christ, we have to reject. Right. The next heresy began to see Jesus as two natures. This is called Nestorianism. Nestorianism, and there's a whole debate as to whether Nestorius actually taught Nestorianism. Poor guy, if he didn't, (laughs) because then he's got a heresy attached to his name (laughs) for all these years. Uh, But Nestorianism, at least the teaching of Nestorianism, whether he taught it or not is a debate. I think he did, but um, Nestorianism is the idea that, well, if he has, if Christ has two natures, then each nature must have a person. Sort of makes sense, doesn't it? And by person, meaning some kind of one who acts through the nature. right? So he said there were two persons in Christ. So that in the incarnation, the Son of God, who is fully, fully God, added to himself a human, and if he adds a human person in nature, he adds a human individual. right? That's a complete individual, isn't it? And of course, this smacks, if you're not careful, of adoptionism what's adoptionism? Well, adoptionism is an old ancient heresy. A lot of people, liberal theologians hold to it. That Jesus was just a man. He's just a normal man that somehow came caught up in the life God used him in the life of God, right? So, in early adoptionism, when he's baptized in the spirit, the adoptionist would say, you know, the power of God came upon him and his cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, the power of God left him. But he was adopted into the divine life. Jesus is just a man. Well, that's not the incarnation. It's not as if you have, and this, of course, part of the importance of the virgin conception, right? You don't have Joseph and Mary creating a human individual that somehow becomes associated with God. No. What you have is the second person of the Godhead from the very moment of conception takes to himself a human nature but it's not a human individual. It's a human nature without a human person. There's no human subject in Christ. The subject, the Word became flesh. The subject of the human nature is the eternal Son of God. That's why He is God. He's not just God beside, you know, a human beside God. It's that the Son of God now has taken to Himself everything that we have in terms of a human nature, but it doesn't have a human person. He, in that human nature, right, is the person, right? That divine son, that's crucial. The word became flesh. The word just didn't become associated with it. He didn't just adopt a divine life, and that's why there's only one person within the incarnate son. So that's why the, the, the confessions will say, Jesus is one person, two natures. He's not two persons, two natures. So that, right, and this is where we have to keep this together, right, is that the Son of God, who is the, we would say, the person of both natures, or the subject of both natures, is able to act through both of those natures simultaneously. Because there's two. And then you're able to say, he is able to say, because in the Gospels, who speaks to you? But you say, well, Jesus does. (laughs) Well, who's Jesus? He's the Word made flesh, right? He is the Son of God who's taken on a humanity. So who is speaking to you in terms of the person is the Son of God from eternity. (laughs) That's who's speaking to you. But he's speaking to you through human vocal cords, through a human body, through a human soul, and so on, right? And he's not even just limited to that. He has a divine nature. But he is able to act through both natures simultaneously. But those natures are not blended. They're not mixed. So he can speak, right, as the son of God and say two things simultaneously that aren't contradictions. He can say in John 8, 58 to the religious leaders, before Abraham, I am. And they're looking at him saying, how's that? We got your birth certificate. Not only did you not exist before Abraham, that's pre-existence, but when you now take the very name of God on yourself, I am, you're claiming eternity. Well, who, how could he say this? Because who's speaking to you? The Son of God is speaking to you, the person of the human nature, right? He's the divine Son. I am. Yet he at the same time can say, he could walk away from saying, I am, and turn to his disciples and say, hey, could you get me some food? I'm hungry. And you say, you're, I am, right? What about Psalm 50? If I were hungry, I wouldn't be asking you. How does that work? Because the Son is, acts through both natures. And you have to keep both natures. Remember, we saw that in Colossians 1. The Son of God, even in as the incarnate one is sustaining the universe. He's not doing that in his humanity. He's doing that as the, through his deity with the Father and the Spirit. Yet he can also grow tired and he can grow, uh, you know, get hungry and go to sleep and, and, and so on, right? So the same Jesus can be sleeping in the boat and be sustaining the universe at the same time. I mean, you have to say that, Right? And so there's where Nestorianism won't allow you to say that, right? You have two persons. No, no, no. There's one person of both natures, right? And what's true of those natures can be said of the person, right? So even when you think of Jesus' death, who dies for us? Well, Jesus. Who's Jesus? Well, we start thinking of he is one person, two natures, right? Who dies for us is God the Son. That's why his cross is a divine work. Right? God the Son dies for us. Well, how is that possible? I mean, God doesn't, the divine nature doesn't die. God's immortal. God's is spirit. God is eternal. I mean, you don't. Oh well, no, the Son of God dies in and through his humanity. That's what makes possible for the person of the Son to even accomplish our salvation. I mean, if he didn't take a humanity himself, he could not identify with us. He could not represent us. He could not die for us. But it's very, very important that the Son of God, it's the Son of God who dies. So it's a divine death because the person of the Son, but he does so in and through his humanity, right? Even the cry on the cross be very careful with this, right? He, The Son of God is bearing our sin. You cannot diminish that. He's taking divine wrath upon himself, right? In some sense, he's taking his own demand upon himself, right? Yet when he cries, my God, my God, why forsake me? We shouldn't see this as, well, suddenly now there's been a surrendering within the triune relations, or somehow the Trinity is, is, is severed or something. No, 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 no. I think the best explanation is the Son of God who's truly representing us, bearing our sins, standing in our place, that the Son of God in and through His humanity, through His human mind and through His human will, that consciousness through that humanity was not the same consciousness of the Father. It was somewhat absent in that humanity than it was before. And it returns, right? Uh, It gives us back to the Father. So, So you have to say that the Son of God in His humanity is thinking humanly. But he's also able to act outside of it. Now, obviously, we say, how does that work? And the answer is, I don't know. We don't have two natures. We don't have one person, two natures, but he does. right? And this is where the church has tried to carefully, carefully preserve. So that, right, in the early church, think of uh, some of the church fathers. When it came to, uh, Jesus says, I don't know the end time. Only my father knows the end time. The Arians jumped on that and said, well, see, he's not God. The Orthodox, at least early on, jumped on that and said, he's just pretending he doesn't know the end. (laughs) Um, He really does. He's just saying that for the purpose of his disciples. You see, what they're preserving is they're preserving his deity, aren't they? And we have to preserve that. But it later was seen by the church to say, there's a better explanation. We have to say that the one son, the person, acts through both natures. That in his humanity, right, how would he have learned in his humanity? Through a human mind, a human will. Well, Luke 2.52, he grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man. He would have learned as we learned through, our, through our, his humanity. right? How do we learn? We study things. We observe. We, and, of course, there would have been the unique work of the Spirit. And, of course, in Christ, you can't understand his humanity apart from the work of the Spirit, can you? so that the spirit is giving revelation to him. Think of the prophets. How did the prophets know supernatural things, right? Well, they knew it by revelation of the spirit. Well, in his humanity, right? He would have the fullness of that revelation be brought to him, right? He's a sinless human in that so that he would have the fullness and he's in an eternal relation to the spirit. So he would have known, right? In terms of a relation with the father and the spirit in that humanity unlike any no prophet it's totally unique right even at 12 years old he knows himself to be the eternal son of God to the father right but he still is doing that in his humanity as well as his deity but he's doing his humanity so when he says I don't know the end for the purposes of his representing us and going to the cross that piece of information is not brought to his human mind does he know it now I'm sure he does right in his humanity now does he know it in terms of ultimately his deity sure you don't have a blend of the divine natures and human nature. You don't have uh, omniscience smuggling over into human. Right? The son, the person, is acting through both natures. And in that humanity, he acts humanly. He learns, depends upon the spirit, acts in that way, and there's true, legitimate obedience, growth, and so on. Nestorianism just can't account for that, and that's how the Bible does speaks of all of that. And then the last heresy to be rejected was a blending of these natures, and that was seen as totally pagan, because at the heart of a Christian view, the whole Bible is God and the world are not the same thing, right? And if you have a blend, you have what is known as pantheism, don't you? You have some kind of blend, and there's all kinds of New Age people, and there's all kinds of Eastern religions, Hinduism, there's all kinds of spiritualities and Christian science, and all kinds of people who have a God-world blend. I mean, the great enemy, in some sense, or the great opposite of a Christian view of creator-creature usually morphs into some kind of God and the world blended together, right? Uh, So you either have a naturalistic understanding of that or a spiritual understanding of that, right? And the Bible says, no, no, no. God is a triune God, is complete within himself, apart from a world. The world is not God. Even though the Son of God has taken to himself a human nature, that humanity and deity are not blended. They're not sort of mixed together. This showed up in the Lutheran tradition. And, of course, Lutheran tradition is really complicated. But on their view of the Lord's Supper, it's very interesting in the Reformation... What almost split the Reformation was debates on the Lord's Supper. (laughs) Uh, You think, oh man, why are they? But Luther argued that somehow in the elements of the Lord's Supper, Christ's body and blood was present. It was there, not just spiritually there. That was Calvin's view. But it was actually there, but it wasn't the elements. So the Roman Catholic view said the body or the elements are actually the body and blood of Christ. Transubstantiation. The church said no, or the Reformation said no. Luther, though, said that the body and blood is present, actually really present. And the only way you can make sense of this is you have to make the body and blood of Christ omnipresent. But body and blood is not omnipresent. And so what happened was is he took a divine omnipresence from the divine nature and brought it over to the human and the reformer says no 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 There are huge huge debates of this in the reformation so the natures remain distinct so what we have in the lord jesus right is the eternal son the word who's now taken on our humanity one person two natures those natures are not blended They're not, the son of the incarnation isn't adopting a human life into the divine life. It's the son of God taking to himself a human nature and becoming fully human, right? And that continues forever. And in that individual, the Lord Jesus Christ, one person, two natures, we now have a redeemer. We have one who can meet our need, right? Now, if we turn to the confessional statement, just let me summarize this here on your, your sheet. You can see how everything I've said here is basically what the confession is, is laying out, and it does so very, very carefully. The Chalcedonian Creed, it says, we following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent. So it's building on the previous confessional statements. This is the fourth council that was held in the church, right? So it's building on the earlier Trinitarian formulations and, and so on, right? So we confess one and the same son, and that one and the same son is emphasizing the one person. The, Jesus is the son from eternity who's become incarnate. Right? The one and the same son. The eternal son of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice who he is. He is the same perfect in Godhead. Right? So that's another way of saying fully God. He's the same perfect in manhood. Truly God, truly man. And then notice what it's very clear here about in terms of his man and his humanity. He takes to himself a body and a soul. Right? So he has a human mind. He has a human will. That's the only way you can make sense of Luke 2.52. He grew in wisdom and stature. He had a true humanity. Right? Coessential with the Father. Coessential language is that homoousius language. Right? It's co-equal, co the same nature. With the Father, according to the Godhead, consubstantial. I'm not sure why they changed their language here, because co-essential, consubstantial mean the same thing. Right? So, consubstantial just comes from the Latin word for substance. So, it's coessential with the Father, coessential, consubstantial with us, according to the manhood. Right? So, all that God is, He is. All that we are, He is, in terms of a human body, a human soul, yet without sin. Begotten before all ages, that's another way of speaking of his eternal relation to the Father. Begotten has nothing to do with time. Uh, Begotten means he's eternally the Son in relation to the Father. Before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, these latter days for us in our salvation, he's born of the Virgin Mary, according to the manhood. Now there is the term I skipped there, mother of God. It's a terrible translation. Roman Catholic theology has gone haywire with it. Mother of God, the term actually is, is, was a huge debate uh, with Nestorianism, and it is the term theotokos, right? a huge discussion, Nestorianism, with the, the council. And all it means here is, is that Mary is the one who bears the manhood, but because the Son of God took to himself a human nature, what's true of that human nature is true of him. So it's another way of saying she bore God, but not not in the sense of his deity, but his humanity. That's all it's saying, right? But it got really distorted in the history of the church. And this one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, two natures. See what it says there? Acknowledged in two natures. So he is fully God, fully human. And then notice it makes very careful, careful qualification. That's true to what we've seen in the scripture. It's without confusion, right? If you had confusion, you would have God and the world blended. No, creator-creature distinction. There was without change. That's right. So the divine nature has not changed. The Son of God has added to himself a human nature. The change has occurred in adding a human nature, but the divine nature and human nature are distinct. It's not as if the divine nature now is blended into a human nature, or you have some kind, no, 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 there's two natures, right? So without confusion, without change. Now, they're not divided or separated. Why? Because they're united in the person. So they're without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union because they ultimately, so it's another way of saying it's the person of the Son who's of both natures. So they're not just artificially there, it's the one person who's the subject of both. Yet those natures remain distinct. And notice what it says here. It says the property of each nature being preserved. So that his humanity does not become deity, his deity doesn't become humanity. Right? He remains all that he is as God, God the Son, from eternity. That does not change, and he adds to himself a human nature. Now he's glorified in that humanity. He glorifies that humanity, yet human remain human. There's no evidence that you and I will be omnipresent, that we will have divine attributes to our human nature. We remain human. There's nothing wrong with that, and his humanity remains human right so he's two natures forever right he's not parted or divided into two persons that's against Nestorianism right so you can see how this council is, is laying things up very carefully what are they working through they're working through the biblical parameters there's one true and living God who's three persons the second person of the God who's fully God God equal with shares the exact same nature with the Father and Spirit, has now added a second nature. It's the person who's added the second nature. So that one person, two natures, and then it carefully lays this, this out, right? Now, in your statement of faith, in terms of the sovereign grace churches, notice I give you on the triune God. It speaks very clearly here of the nature of God as one true And living God. It it speaks about really that whole statement there uh, under the nature of God is God's one being, his attributes, his perfections. All three persons have the same divine nature. And then as it moves then to Trinity, it's picking up the relation of Father, Son, and Spirit. The one true God eternally exists. So what has been described of God in terms of the nature of God exists as three persons. Each person is Fully, God, sharing the same deity attributes, essential nature. Yet there's one God, right? So, so the three persons are the one divine nature. Each person is distinct, yet not divided into three gods. The Father has always existed as Father, and then notice the language here. We said the Church had to think of ways of how the Father's different than the Son. The Father is unbegotten. That's another way of saying he's Father. The son has always existed as son, but he's eternally begun. That's another way of saying he's son. And then the same of the spirit, right? So it's carefully laying out persons sharing the same nature yet distinct. And then as it moves over into the relations and actions, right? So it's very clearly one God who acts, who's three, right? So that statement there, the persons of the Trinity being one in nature act inseparably, Right, in terms of their external works. That means create outside of themselves, creation, redemption, and so on. Right, and Then halfway through that section there, it says, within the Godhead, the ordered relations are eternal. As they work outside, all three act together. Right, in One act. And then when it comes to the person of Christ, in the fullness of time, the incarnation of two natures, God the Father sent His Son, the second person of the Trinity into the world as Jesus the Christ, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a Virgin Mary, took on our human nature, attributes, frailties, yet without sin, right? So, full body and soul. In this union, two whole, perfect, distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. See, it's just clarifying Chalcedon, right? So, two natures, yet they're united in the person, but they're distinct. Our Redeemer acted in and through both his human and divine natures in ways appropriate to each. That's what we're emphasizing, right? So in his humanity, he doesn't turn that into deity. Instead, he acts through both natures. So he can say, I am, I'm tired. <laughs> He's acting through both. Through humanity, I'm tired. I am through his deity. Um, and it says, both natures being preserved and not being diminished by the other. And then it goes on to speak of how that shows itself in his life and ministry, right? So your confessional statement is really, really sort of in more modern language, picking up the early councils of Chalcedon or Nicaea, and then eventually Chalcedon, and it's putting it together in such a way that it then moves to his work. And beautifully then saying, unless you have what the Bible says in terms of this Redeemer, Precisely this kind of redeemer, you won't have the kind of work and redemption we need. The kind of redemption that we have, the scripture describes, demands this kind of redeemer. They're inseparably tied together, right? So there's how the church has sought to reflect on this. And today, as we began with the poll, state of theology poll, right? When some are saying, we believe in the Trinity, but then deny... Jesus is just a great teacher and not God, obviously, there's a kind of Arianism. You've got the Holy Spirit as a force. That's, you know, that's, that's a depersonalization of the Trinity. I mean, you have all of the heresies are still with us today. Liberal theology treats Jesus just as another man, right? Well, that's adoptionism, right? So all of these early heresies, cults, and so on, are still with us today. It demands, then, that we as the church, right, for the proclamation of the gospel, right? The proclamation of Christ. We must proclaim the Jesus of the Bible in the categories of the Bible, the teaching of the Bible, and then the church has nicely confessed that and put that together for us that's consistent with the Bible. In terms of Christian discipleship, right? We desperately need exposition, theological training, understanding of history, understanding of our doctrines so that, right, we are not tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine. As we began this morning, this is not a minor issue, is it? Because if you get Jesus wrong, it's life and death. You can get a lot of things wrong in life, right? You can get your calculus wrong and you can get, you know, your uh, Shakespeare wrong. And you can get all kinds of things wrong, right? But if you get this wrong, there is no salvation outside of him, right? We have to have faith. Trust and confidence in the Jesus of the Bible, right? And the God of the Bible, who's triune. You can't say, well, I could have a different conception of Jesus and still have the salvation of the Bible. No, those two don't go together, right? You need both of these brought uh, side by side with one another, right? So that's, in some sense, a mini look at, right? Something of the glory of Christ, right? Something of, you need the whole Bible. Specific texts it can be looked at, multiple texts, right? But the whole Bible presents to you the Word made flesh, right? The God, the Son from eternity who's become incarnate, right? There's there's no other Jesus presented to you, right? The deity of Christ is everywhere right? across the entire Bible, and especially the New Testament. It's everywhere, as much as it's humanity and so on, right? Um, everything teaches this, and it leads to the kind of salvation the Bible describes, right? A salvation of God, right? Not a human initiative. It's a salvation by grace, by God taking the initiative to keep his own promises and keep his own promises by the provision of himself in his son to meet his own demand. That's what's going on here. It's a divine work from beginning to end in and through the son who has taken on our humanity to be our great redeemer. Well, that's that. Our time is up, but I, we can I take questions if you want. Uh, we can just conclude in prayer and then we'll see what you want to do in terms of time. I have time to talk, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for just even a short time to think through the glory of your own Son, the Son from eternity, whom you've loved, whom the Son, our Son, our Lord Jesus, who you've loved the Father and in the Spirit, uh, world without end. Uh, we now... Uh, rejoice in the giving of that son for us and we long for even eternity as we think of the future that as we live our lives as we seek to be faithful until uh, the lord jesus comes or he takes us to be with him and then as we think of a new heavens a new earth that we will rejoice in you our triune god in and through uh, the glorified son that we will touch and see And hear and even hear him speak in glorified human vocal cords. Uh, Be able to then uh, know him who is life eternal and know you, Father and Spirit, through the Lord Jesus. So uh, help us to rejoice in these great truths. Help us to think about them uh, deeply. Help us to get it right so that we may have a faithful witness to the world and ourselves have. a faith that is truly biblical, a faith that is truly in the Jesus of the Bible and not our imagination, and uh, help us to pass these truths on to uh, our children and another generation and those that uh, we witness to and come into the church and we disciple. Help us to be faithful in passing on the faith once delivered to the saints. Uh, we commit these things to you, and we commit the rest of our day to you. Help us to glorify you in all things, and we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone dash U.